0: Morning, church. How you guys doing? Um, If you have a Bible, please open it to John chapter 2. Let me read this very, very, very uh, um, well-known miracle of Jesus. Uh, Probably the most popular one, probably up there, most popular, turning water into wine, especially in Northern California. Um, uh, Let me read this this account to you, this uh, this story, and then I will pray. Verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used By the Jews for ceremonial washing. Each holding from 80 to 120 liters. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then Jesus told them, draw out some, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Lord, as we turn now to the scriptures, we ask God our hearts would be I'm open to receive your, your word. Um, I ask, Lord, by your spirit, you would uh, teach us, God. We, I place myself under, humbly place myself under its authority and its power. And I'm always humbled by the fact that I stand here and to, uh, talking about your scriptures. It's a, it's a humbling thing. And I just pray, God, that you give us grace to study it and understand it. Allow us to live into this text. And I pray for those who do not have faith um, this morning, that you would, you would grant us faith, God pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, SNL 40, you guys watch Saturday Night Live. SNL 40 uh, was on this past week. Saturday Night Live uh, celebrated 40 years of comedy. Um, And they had this huge live broadcast, like three and a half, 20 hours long or something like that, um, on Sunday night. And they brought in all kinds of people. They brought in all kinds of comedians, all kinds of actors and musicians. Kanye West performed. And he started his performance while he was laying on the ground um, in, like, emulating the crucifixion and a microphone over his mouth. And it was hanging over his face. And he started his performance, and I believe, in a very appropriate way. He started it with a, actually an, an older song of his um, We're at War with Racism and Terrorism. And he says, Most of all, we're at war with ourselves. And I think this is appropriate that he took this song out of the archives for live television where tons of people were watching considering the race tensions that once again have sparked outrage in our nation over the last six months and the threatening war of terror and everything going on with ISIS. And he most appropriately says, we're at war with terrorism and we're at war with racism. But most of all, he says, most of all, we're at war with ourselves. Kanye is saying what Columbia University professor Andrew Delbanco, who we talked about a few, um, gosh, a few, maybe a month and a half ago, the secular liberal who wrote in his book, he wrote a book called Death of Satan. And we talked about it when we did our Devil sermon. And where he makes the case that secular people have no voc- vocabulary to deal with evil. We have a hard time dealing with evil. And because of that, it's hard for modern, modern secular people to cope with evil. He argues that because we're enlightened secular people, we can't call evil evil. It's really hard for us to call evil, evil. So what we do is we scapegoat, we blame. It's hard to, to find evil in the world and we just blame other people. We blame other people. We say the problem is outside of us. The problem is out there. The problem is with ISIS and the problem is with racists and the problem is with Fox News and the problem is with ignorant people and the problem, it's with people who don't see the world like I see the world. That's where the problem lies. DeBanco tries to get his readers to realize and does this. And he's secular. He's a professor. He's a secular professor. And He says, I want you to realize in his book called Death of Satan that the evil is, in, is actually in all of us. Evil isn't necessarily just out there. It's in here. So, yes, we're at war. And we are at war with racism and we are at war with terrorism. But as Kanye, I think, appropriately says, most of all, we're at war with ourselves. So what's the answer? Again, in the most unlikely of places, I can't believe I'm saying this. Kanye's right again. (laughs) The answer is, and obviously, if you know, that song is from Jesus Walks. And he pulls that song out of the archives. He pulls out this old song at a very appropriate time, says, Jesus walking among us is the answer. If we're at war with all these other things, and we're even truly, the deepest thing is we're at war with ourselves, what is the answer? Jesus walking among us. The reason why I open like that is because I believe this is exactly what John is saying. John, the writer of John, is saying in the first half, especially the first half of his book, chapters 1 through 12, that this, about his book about Jesus, that the answer is, the answer for everything that comes up in life, the answer of the war that's out there and the war that's in here. And, he, and John does it a little bit more maybe theologically credible than Kanye does, but... He says virtually the same thing. He says, the reason why Jesus among us is the answer. This is how John opens his book. This was last week. The reason why Jesus among us and Jesus walking among us is the answer. It's the answer to all the evil out there and all the evil in our hearts is because Jesus is God. And this is the way John does it. He does it in a very, very poetic, um, as we studied last week, probably changed the history of thought, this prologue. He starts like this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, Jews and Greeks both would not have a problem with this opening sentence. They actually would have been hooked right in. The Jews saw God's word, God's logos, um, as God's way of interacting with the world. That's how God interacted with the world. He, he spoke into the world. He spoke, and it was, Genesis 1. Um, it's his, it, his word was God, but distinct from God, and his way of interacting with the world was God. So this is what John is saying. He's like, in the beginning was the word, and the word's with God. The word was God. Jews would have been, okay, we can go with you there. But then to the Greeks saw the logos, not God's word necessary, but the logos. Logos was this impersonal, harmonious, and divine structure of the cosmos. And so when John was saying in the beginning was the word, Jews would have heard that as, as, in the beginning was God's word, and they would have said, yeah, absolutely, he was there at the beginning. And the Greeks would have said in the beginning was the logos. Yeah, the logos is there. And the, and the word was with God. The word was with God. Jews would have said, okay, we're with you there. Greeks would have said, you're saying that the Logos was with the divine. Okay, we can go there with you. And the word was God. And Jews would have said, okay, yeah, the word of God is God. Okay. And then the Greeks would have said, the word, the Logos is divine. Okay, we'll go there with you as well. He would have had both of them. But then he gets to verse 14 and says this. And the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's Eugene Peterson's translation from the message. I love that. And the word, the logos, to the Greeks, that logos became flesh and blood and moved into your neighborhood. And the Greeks would have went, "What? Well, that's absurd!" And the Jews would have said the same thing, "That's absurd. There's no way that God can become flesh and move in." God became flesh, or the universe and the one who makes it harmonious and function and move the Greeks, became flesh. Or the one you talk to when you are all alone and you ask the heavens, why am I here? The one who's listening, that became flesh and lived and walked among us. And the implications for this are huge. Because it's not that Jesus is simply a teacher. So we encounter Jesus as a teacher, and though he is, and he he talks more in this gospel than all the other gospels. If you have the book of John in red letter, it's just read everywhere. Jesus talks a lot in this gospel. It's not simply Jesus the teacher who walked with us, though he is, but he's not simply the teacher. It's not Jesus the Epicurean who loved a good party, though he was. Um, One writer says that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either um, coming from a meal, going to a meal, or at a meal. (laughs) Jesus loved a good meal. But we're not, it's not just Jesus the Epicurean. It's not just Jesus who loves a good party. Not just Jesus the healer who's full of compassion, though we meet that Jesus here. It's not just Jesus the political lightning rod who kept getting into trouble, though he was that as well. See, if you read John carefully, especially chapters 1 through 12, every encounter with Jesus... Any encounter someone has with Jesus, they think they're encountering. They think they are walking with human Jesus. But when they, what they realize is that walking with, they've encountered God. And this is, this is the beauty of John's writing. Like someone's walking, someone's doing this, someone's doing that. And as the story progresses, all of a sudden they're in the midst of the glory of God. And God's glory is manifested there. Now, I will tell you that sometimes it's harder to see, but it's there. You have to look for it. So I'm going to look for it with you today in chapter 2. Maybe we can learn a little bit about even studying. How do we study? So let's try to find where the interaction is here. Now, if you have your Bible open, turn to verse 11 or your phone or whatever. Just look at verse 11 with me. Look at verse 11. This is a wonderful story. I read this story at almost every single wedding I do. This is one of Jesus' most popular miracles. But how do we know it's not just... A great story about Jesus making a party better. Like Jesus shows up at a party and wine runs out. No more alcohol. And Jesus is like, boom, boom, bam. (laughs) And then like the best wine you've ever had ever. The reserve wine from God. How do we know it's not just that story? Jesus is like, I show up at a party And then watch this. How do we know it's not just a really cool trick? Here's how. Look at verse 11. This is the key that unlocks the entire story. This is something that when you see this verse, this should allow you to reread the story and go, what's really going on here? Look at verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. John is saying what Jesus did here in Cana and Galilee, turning water into wine, he did. This was the first time he did this. This is his first miracle. He, what he did there, he revealed his glory. That's the clue. That this is not just Jesus doing some party trick for a friend who ran out of wine. That's what, this is not just that. John says that through this sign, it reveals his glory. Now, that word glory, that, that should... Um, as you're reading John, you're like, glory, I think I've heard that before. I've seen that word glory before. Where did I see that word glory? Turn to the left in your Bibles. Just turn to the left. John 1, 14. Look at it. Oh, I hear pages. Oh, I'm proud of you, church. The five people that have a real Bible. Probably we gave them to you, but whatever, I'm really proud. Turn over to the left, John 1. 14, the word became flesh. Eugene Peterson writes in the message, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Then look at this next sentence. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. This verse is so loaded. The glory of God in the Old Testament, dwelt in a tent. Uh, It was called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was filled with God's glory. Moses didn't even want to go in because it was so glorious. And there was always like a a veil or a sheet to protect it. Eventually, when King Solomon built a temple, the glory of God filled the temple. The glory of God was always something that was covered, hidden, behind the veil. But what John is saying is not anymore. God His word, who is God, became flesh, and he uses the word um, tented or made his tent. That word dwelling is the word tent or tabernacle. So John's taking that word right from the Old Testament. Where God lived in the Old Testament in a tent or a tabernacle, he now lives among us in the person of Jesus. This is what John is saying. That Jesus is God among us. It's God's glory that was hidden behind this, this veil, now on full display, full of grace and truth for all of us to experience. God is in the flesh manifesting his glory. So when John 2.11 says that this was the first signs through which he revealed his glory, what he's saying is, if you go back to uh, verse one, chapter 1, verse 14, what John's saying is, this is the first sign that Jesus showed that he was God. This is the first sign that he he, he revealed the glory of God through him. This is the first sign that you get that Jesus is saying, this is God among you. And what was that first sign? What was the first thing that Jesus did to show the the glory of God? He made wine. And everyone that has visited Napa said, amen. (laughs) Some of you in here are like, "Well, I knew I I love this Christianity thing. This Christianity thing is so, so neat. Okay, well, well, wait. Yeah, he did make wine, but there's a lot more more meaning than just simply making wine. Notice John doesn't call it a miracle. He calls it a sign. This is a sign. Now, why does John call it a sign? Here's one commentator who, who comments on this. He says, a sign is this. A sign is a significant, significant. See, that's cute, huh? I didn't do that. He did it a significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith a sign is a display of power that points beyond itself to a deeper reality so when you see when john he uses this several times when john does a when john shows that jesus does a sign it's a signpost pointing if you get the story pointing to a deeper reality this is not just another story About a good bottle of cab, or actually 150 gallons of cab. That's how much Jesus made. What Jesus did here has deeper meaning. Pointing to who he truly is and what he came to do. To understand, we have to first understand this. Wine, in in Jewish thought, in the Old Testament, wine is a good thing. Wine is a great thing. Too much wine, like with most things, is a bad thing. The, the, the Old Testament scriptures teach us not to have too much wine. Even the New Testament talks about that. But Judaism taught how to live within restraint. And it said within restraint and within limits, wine is good. No, wine is great. Wine ha- is a symbol of joy and celebration in the Old Testament. And the Jewish Passover feast, they were to say during the Passover feast, there is no rejoicing except with wine. There is no rejoicing except with wine. They were to say that during the Passover feast. To the Jews, feasting with wine was, was important. It was a good, good thing. So you might be able to see how tragic it was if the wine ran out. If you are at a feast of rejoicing, at a wedding feast, the, probably the feast of all feasts, where the wedding would last typically about a week long, and, they, and the host, the bridegroom, was responsible for getting enough wine to last a week. Can you imagine that? And there was no, like, there was no BevMo's. Like, we ran out of wine. Someone go to BevMo real fast and grab some wine. We have the five-cent special thing. No, that was not a thing then. You had to plan ahead. And they didn't. And it was a few days into this wedding feast, and they ran out of wine. They ran, okay, so the, the, the point of the story is this. They ran out of joy. Joy ran out. In the middle of a wedding feast. They're partying, they're celebrating new life, and they ran out of joy. They ran out of rejoicing. This is awkward. Awkward moment at the wedding. This is like when the best man does a speech, and 50% of the time it's really I've been on do a lot of weddings. <laughs> Super awkward. Maybe 60% of the time. It's like that. In the middle of a wedding, something awkward happens, and the joy is gone. So Jesus, his mother, Mary goes up to Jesus and says literally this. It says this in, in Greek. This is how it reads. The wine has failed. The wine has failed. Jesus responds. It's a real peculiar response. Um, he says, woman, which doesn't, is not as rude as it sounds in English, but it's not as endearing as you might think. It, it, is, it is like this separation. What does that have to do with me? I, what does that have to do between you and me? I don't understand. And then Mary, in this really, I don't know, Mary just knows Jesus. It's his mom. He just turns to the servants, she turns to the servants and says, just do whatever he says. (laughs) Like Mary doesn't go, What do you mean? How does it do? You're my son. I mean, come on, do something. I've like nothing like that. She just goes, All right. And she just turns to the servants, like, just do whatever he says. And they walk away, and then Jesus, it's John then puts this comment, this comment is not a throwaway comment, about ceremonial jars. It says, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the wa- jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. See, the wine failing and the ceremonial water jars have deeper meaning as well. If, if wine is Jewish, a Jewish symbol for rejoicing, as it says in Psalm 104, that wine makes the heart glad, then rejoicing, running out at a wedding, which is... Wedding is rejoicing. It's like rejoicing running out during a festival of rejoicing. It's not just ironic. It's incredibly true. Have you ever felt felt lonely in a place where you expected to feel the most fulfilled? Have you ever got into something that you're like, once I have this thing, my life will be full? And you get that thing, and you get it in the best way possible... And it doesn't do the thing you thought it was going to do. Or it does the thing that you thought it was going to do, but it does it for about four days. And then it loses it. You went and did something, maybe, that you thought would make you so happy. You went and did this or that, and that thing that you did didn't make you happy afterwards. Or didn't last as long as you thought it should have lasted. This happens, this little pericope here, is like the story of our lives. It's like the wine fails. The thing that we thought would bring us the most joy fails. This happens so often that we think it's the way it is. We go to another job or another city or another relationship or another bar or another trip somewhere around the world, another year dealing with the same old problems, and we say, well, that's just the way it is. That's what we tell ourselves. But all the while, we kind of also know that that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's like, rejoicing running out at a feast of rejoicing it's sad and it's ironic and it's incredibly true these are our stories and that's what's so great about the gospel is you find yourself in these stories it's us it's our marriages it's our relationships it's our hopes it's our careers it's our life the wine fails the wine has failed but here's the thing of the story this is what's beautiful jesus is there The wine fails, but Jesus is there. How did Jesus get there? He was invited. That was just my little pastor moment, sorry. (laughs) He was invited. Like, it just says that. John's like, he was invited. I just love that. He was invited to the wedding. He was invited in. That's why he was there. Like, when things fail, Jesus was there. How How did Jesus get there? He was invited. Sorry. That's my, I don't know. It's cute. I like it. Okay. Okay, so he has these six stone water jars that were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Okay? So Jesus grabs these and has them fill them up. Before entering into the temple to offer sacrifices, um, the Jews would have to wash. And they would do this often. It's prescribed in the, the Old Testament law. They would wash themselves. And they would, they would have these... Uh, bronze laver, uh, laver, levers lavers or, uh, or, or jars like like here, and they would wash themselves before they went in the sacrifice before they went in to, to meet with God whenever they went to meet with god they 'd wash themselves and so the home became a microcosm of the temple, and so in uh, the, the time of Jesus, Jewish homes had these jars in front of them where they would wash before they got into the home where they washed before they went into a feast or they washed before they went into a festival this is a wedding feast so everyone who went to this feast would have ceremonially washed they would have washed themselves before they entered in these jars were for ceremonial washing and here's the point this is why they're mentioned judaism's ritualistic vessels of purification are now being filled with new things what used to bring them ritual purity is now being filled with something new, Jesus. And the wine he brings, the joy he brings. Where ritual purification cleanses your hands, uh, the wine of God makes Mary the heart. And that's the point. Like these jars that Jesus takes, he turns Judaism's ritualistic vessels of purification into something new. The water of ritual is being replaced with the wine of new life. The water of ritual is being replaced by the wine of new life. It's the old being replaced with new. It's ritual being replaced with life. It's running out being replaced with abundance. It's tastelessness being replaced with you have saved the best till now. And so Jesus does all of this through like he takes these jars. And, he, and, and he's not just doing them because they're there and they can hold them. He's saying something. He's like the 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 ritual purification of the Old Testament has met its end in me. I fulfill the Old Testament. I pu- fulfill the purity. I am the purity of God. I am this. And not only that, not only does he do that, but he does that in the most incredible way because we haven't even gotten to the sign part yet. We haven't even got to what's this what's this a sign pointing towards? Now look, let's go back real quick. I don't have, you don't have to turn your Bibles there, but I'm just gonna put it on the screen. I do this almost every week because it's so important. Genesis. You guys should have this book memorized by now, okay? At least the first, like, five chapters. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 1. Genesis 2. Creation. Beauty. Perfection. Shalom. Harmony. Genesis 3. Sin. Rebellion. The fall. The serpent. The fruit. Whatever that fruit was. Uh, Naked and, and ashamed. Not naked and unashamed. Naked and ashamed. God comes on the scene. Asks what went on. Um... Adam uh, blames Eve. Eve blaves the serpent. God starts dealing out consequences for rebellion. He gets to the snake, the serpent. Later on in Revelation, we're told this is the devil. He gets to the serpent and he says this to him. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you, this, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head, And you will strike his heel. This, um, theologians and commentators call this the proto-evangelion. Say that under your breath. It's a really fun word to say. Proto-evangelion. This means it's the first mention of the gospel. This is God saying this. You have tempted mankind to fall away from me and rebel and to trust in themselves over trusting in my word. One day I will set all this right again. I, from the offspring of woman, she will birth a a, a man and this man will crush your head, but not without you striking at his heel. You will strike him and it will be a blow, but it won't be a fatal blow, but he will deal a fatal blow to you. Now this idea of, a man coming to crush Satan's head is developed throughout the Jewish Bible. And it keeps it actually keeps growing and expanding as you read throughout the Old Testament. Um, different characteristics and promises were assigned to the coming one. They would call him the Messiah or the anointed one. The one from God. He would deliver his people like the Exodus. He would rule his people well like King David. And it kept on taking steam and getting steam all the way into prophetic literature of the Old Testament. When they called him the Messiah or the Anointed One, they said that the Messiah or the Anointed One would be when God restored, he would come and restore everything back to Garden of Eden implications. He would restore everything back to Garden of Eden intentions. He would come and make everything new again and renew it. He would make the whole world new And the way they talked about that was by saying that when God restores all things through his anointed one or through his Messiah, it will be like a wedding feast. That's what they said. They liken it to a wedding feast. When God restores all things and when Messiah comes, it'll be a party. It'll be the best party anyone's ever been to. Turn to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25, we get a picture of this. And look at what it says. Uh, Start at verse 6. Isaiah 25, 6 says this. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare. Yahweh himself will prepare a, a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest of wines, in Hebrew, this, this gets even more like fatty, like fatty meats and rich wine. It gets, it's just, um, I think in Hebrew, the word meats there, it's just fats. It's like, it's so good, it's just, just fats. And it's like the best wine you've ever had, A, the finest of aged wine. He says, on this mountain, he, the Messiah, will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death Forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And in that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So when Jesus steps into this wedding feast and he turns water into the best wine ever made. What Jesus is saying is the the first sign that Jesus came to do. He's saying this, 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 Isaiah 25, this, this is what I came to do. He steps in and he turns this rejoicing feast that lost all its joy into a messianic feast. He turned it into like this is what I came to do. I came to restore all things. I came to bring in the day of messianic joy. I came in to destroy the shroud that keeps you in un- in faithlessness. I came to swallow up death forever. I came to wipe tears and remove your disgrace. Remember when John the Baptist saw him in chapter 1, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus is saying that's what I've come to. I've come to inaugurate I've come to usher in. I've come to bring in this. I am the one who brings in new wine. I'm the one that brings in a messianic feast. I'm the one that everything, as it's been building, has been pointing towards. That's me. This is what Jesus is doing in here. And that's what he's doing. But, but how would he do it? Would he just show up at parties everywhere and just like, boom, messianic feast. Boom, messianic feast. New wine, new wine, new wine. Is that what he came to do? Is that what he just like showed up everywhere? Well, not necessarily. There's a strange interaction between Jesus and his mother. And she says, the wine failed. They have no more wine. And Jesus says, woman, what does that have to do with me? Okay. Um, This is a very strange command or uh, response. But then he says this. And there is, I mean, in the text, there's some distance that Jesus um, brings there. He's like basically saying, mother, I have to do my father's will, not your will anymore. Like he's separating himself from Mary. There is some of that going on in the language there. But look what he says next. This is, this is odd too. He says, what does, that ha- what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What does that mean? My hour hasn't come. It's not like Jesus says, mom, it's not 5 p.m. yet. <laughs> like we've talked about this before. I will not make wine before 5. <laughs> it just won't. It can't do it. I've told you this before. It's not like my hour, just wait a couple minutes. And I'll do it, then I'll do it. That's not what is going on here. This hour was about his death. When we hear that, that, that at Jesus' first sign, that his hour has not yet come, what we should be doing is as we're reading John, we should be looking for that word hour again. His hour has not come in John 2. When does his hour come? And what does his hour mean? As you keep reading... You get into John chapter 12. I know that's in the middle of the book, but it's actually just a few day, the last few days of his life. John chapters 1 through 12 are, make up about three years. John 12 through uh, 20 make up about um, a, a few days, maybe uh, eight, nine days. So at, the, at chapter 12, as it goes into Jesus' last week of life, he says this in John 12. Here's a sampling of what goes on. It's on the screen. Uh, John twelve twenty three. Jesus replied, The hour has come. The hour has not come in John 2, but at chapter 12, it has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for it is this very reason I came to this hour. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, that is through the cross, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The hour that Jesus was seeing this wedding feast through was the hour when he would sacrifice his life in order to swallow up death forever. Jesus responds to Mary, this is not my hour yet. It's not like it's not my hour like to do miracles. It's not my hour to be glorified yet. And the reader goes, when is the hour? Jesus, what he does here at this wedding feast, he sees through this wedding feast. He sees through it all the way to the time when he would, his hour would come and he would give his life as a ransom for many. To put an end to death, an end of sin, an end of the devil. And by doing so, bring us into a feast where tears will be wiped away and true joy and fellowship with God and with other is, each other is restored. But let's go back to this real quick. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. By turning water into wine. By saying the Messiah when has entered into the world through me. By saying the ritual purification of the Old Testament meets its end in me. And I bring about new things. I bring about renewal. When he says that, notice it says this. And his disciples believed him. It doesn't say everyone at the party believed in him. Some people just can't see what Jesus has really come to do. And I, my hope, and the way that we've been praying for you as you guys gather here on Sunday, is I hope that you can see it. I hope that you can see it. I hope that you place your trust in Christ. That through this you see that he is the one that fulfills all, all of the brokenness. He, through Jesus walking alongside of us, God in flesh walking. That's where the healing of our brokenness comes from. But this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do to end. I want to end, but I want to end with something I don't typically do. I want to end with just a, a three pastoral thoughts. Um, I don't typically do this, but I, I, I want. To, uh, early on in, in studying, I really there's some really neat things that come from um, pastoral things that come from these uh, these stories and these parcapes that I want to um, to pull out for you. So I'll end with these thoughts, and then we'll pray and. And receive communion. First the thought to married couples. A marriage. In which there is no place for Christ. And his disciples. Is a very scary place to be. If you've never done this before. I want to encourage you to grab your spouse. Before you take communion. And invite Jesus into your marriage. Just invite him into your marriage. Or if there's a place that you have placed him to the periphery the periphery, that you would bring them front and center into your marriage. And it could be a simple prayer. It could be a prayer like this. We have no more wine, Jesus. And every married couple in here knows exactly what that means. We have no more wine. That joy, we, Lord, we have no more wine. Would you help? The wine in the celebration of marriage eventually give out. Jesus' first miracle, his first sign, repairs the needs of marriage and its failings. It was the man's, the bridegroom's fault he didn't buy enough wine. And Jesus makes provision. Jesus can bring new wine into your marriage. Invite him. The, I want a, a simple thought here about o- obedience. One of the most pastoral lessons I can teach you from this text is to trust Jesus. Uh, Mary's command to the waiters becomes her address to our, us as well. John does this play on words all the time. So Mary's command to the waiters becomes our command. And Mary turned to the waiters and said, do whatever he tells you. And John leaves that there and he wants us to be like, hey, do what Jesus says. And what Jesus says might be really, really, really silly. Like fill up water jars. You're like, I'm doing that. Like, I, I got a good job. I don't need to do that. And they, listen, they fill up these jars. And he's like, okay, now grab someone and take it to, the, to the, 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 the host of the party who's, who's running everything. And they're like, w- w- "If we're going to take him uh, dirty water, like purification water. People have just done this thing with the water. And I filled it back up, and then I'm like, well, we don't really like him anyway, so let's do it. So they bring it to him, and they just, they obey. Simple Obedience. And when the waiters do trust Jesus and thus obey his simple and strange commands, the wine flows. And so does joy. Our joy is taken away through disobedience. Gone. I don't care how smart you are. How like, I, but I know the Bible. But you, those simple things that we know that God is calling us to do and we do not do them. We do not obey the voice of God. It removes joy and it just stifles joy. It kills joy. When we listen to God's word and God's voice and we, do, we just simply do what it says, it brings about joy. And the joy of God flows in us and through us. And the last thing, I thought to people who need new wine. There is new life and new wine and new joy in Jesus. Jesus makes things new. He makes things alive, not just better, but completely different. He doesn't make your life better. He makes it new. He makes it brand new. He turns water into wine. He doesn't turn water into like the smart water. He turns water to wine. He makes it completely different. And not just any wine. Superior in quality. This is the best wine. You've saved the best till right now. That's the life of God. The The best of God saved for you for right now. And so if you need If you're just, you feel dry and joyless, there is new life. There is new wine offered through the life and the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus. And he promised us that through his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, I thank you. Thank you. Thank you, God, for walking among us, for showing us the way, for being the way. And God, I want to pray that we would respond to you in in ways that are um, expectant. That we would expect great things as we trust in you, God. That we would expect, Lord, that you meet, that you meet us, that you bring the joy. Even in the midst of horrible circumstances, you bring joy. I pray that you would fill this church up with the joy of God. I ask, Lord, that this church, the joy of the Lord, be our strength. That we would have joy no matter what we're going through in Christ. And I ask God that you would change circumstances here as well. That you would turn water into wine. That you'd make dead people alive. That we would place our trust in you. That we would be a people who obey you, God. Simply obey you even when it doesn't make any sense. Tune our ears to hear from you. Allow our hearts to obey you. You said you give us a new heart with a new spirit that obeys the Lord. I ask God that that heart would be um, revived if it's dead, brought back to life. May we go to love and serve and obey Jesus. Thank you, God. In Christ's name, amen. Church, as we move into a time of response, this is how I want us to think about responding to God today. Let me say this. This, right now, right this moment, is probably the most important part of our entire service. It is the most important part of our entire service. This is where we actually respond. We've heard things. Now what do we do with them? So let me encourage you to respond to God through, um, it might be through like simple prayer. Guys, simple prayer, not making things complex. Simple, like that's, when you get in in Scripture,